This is Dev Propulsion Labs, the podcast about building successful developer tools, hosted by Evil Martians. Hi, this is Dev Propulsion Labs, and I'm your host, Victoria Melnikova. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest. Please welcome David Hanemeyer Hansen, also known as DHH, co-founder of Basecamp and Hey, and creator of Ruby on Rails. I want to start this episode by introducing you, but I'm afraid that I'm going to butcher the full list of accolades you have. I think you've written your kind of like introduction on your website pretty clearly, but how do you tend to introduce yourself these days? What What is the list that you give to people when you meet them? <clears throat> well, it all depends on what community or what circle I'm in. I've had the good fortune to be active in a bunch of different communities that are not overlapping at all. When I talk to programmers, I'm obviously talking about Ruby on Rails and building Basecamp and so on. When I'm talking about race car fans, I'm talking about driving at Lamar or LMP2 prototypes or, or whatever. So it sort of depends. But for programmers, the audience of this is obviously Ruby on Rails. That has been my life's work. I've been working on it for a good 20 years now and built uh, Basecamp and Hey and a bunch of other SaaS products through 37 Signals, the company I'm a co-owner and CTO at. And then in the span of those 20 years, I also feel like I've learned a few things and I try to share as much of that as possible. Together with Jason Fried, I've written a handful of books, the latest, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. We wrote about remote working all the way back in 2013 before most people were doing that. And then of course, rework a better way to work back in 2010. And then all the way back to 2006, I wrote a book called Getting Real together with Jason. So there's sort of a full host of things, but what I continue to be passionate about is programming, is systems design, is the entrepreneurship that is possible when you put those pieces together in a good way. And I think that's what we're trying to do in the Ruby on Rails community. It's not just about technology for its own sake. It's technology for a purpose. And very often that purpose is entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, thank you. It really is a big list. And I have to say that your work impacts my work on a daily basis. And because I work at Evil Martians, historically we've been a Ruby on Rails shop, but we've really delved into other things, dev tools. But I use Basecamp on a daily basis, you know? Oh, so sorry. yeah, I want to thank you for your contribution to this industry. And I think thousands of people would say the same. So this year is a huge milestone. We celebrated the 20 years of Rails. And there was Rails World just recently. Can you maybe walk us through the memorable milestones in those 20 years? What were some most significant milestones that you hit? Yeah, I mean, that is quite a long span of time. I mean, if we rewind the clock all the way back to 2003, which is when I started working with Ruby, that to me was obviously the foundation, the epiphany that programming could be something very different. I'd worked in a variety of different programming languages and environments before that, and I very much looked at those other alternatives as means to an end. This was something I did because I wanted systems, and this was just something I had to do. And Ruby, to me, was the first programming language that seemed like an end in itself. As well as also being a means to an end, it was also an end in itself. It's a, it's a programming language that just had such a pleasure about it, about how to write it, that inspired me to become a much better programmer. It inspired me to treat programming as a fundamental part of who I wanted to be and who I was, and not just a tool. 
So that encounter with Ruby back in 2003 was the original foundation. And then, of course, in 2004, in February, I think February 4th, maybe, was when we first released Basecamp, which was the first system ever built with Ruby on Rails. It was the bedrug of the system that we carved out, that I carved out Ruby on Rails from. It was in a, a series of extractions from it. And... I think the history of Ruby on Rails is to some extent tied up in that. If Basecamp had not been the success it was and is, I don't know if I would have had the ability to continue to invest in Ruby on Rails and be so focused on it for so many years afterwards. So I think this is, again, one of those areas where entrepreneurship and commerce and business overlaps with the positive stories we can tell in the open source community. And then in late 2004, I presented Rails at the third international Ruby conference, I believe it was, which was kind of fun to show it to the American audience of Ruby enthusiasts. I remember vividly asking the audience of about 40 people, how many people work professionally with Ruby? And like one hand went up and my <laughs> hand went up. And that was it. It was just not a... Base of programming where there was a lot of commercial development happening outside of Japan. And it's really been satisfying to see, or was satisfying to see, how quickly thereafter we were able to, I don't want to say turn that around, because there were a lot of people who were just doing Ruby for the love of Ruby, and that's a beautiful thing. But it's also quite beautiful if you could do Ruby for work, for pay. If you can get paid to write this beautiful programming language, that certainly enables a lot more people to spend a lot more time with Ruby, which I think is certainly a net good thing. And that happened quite shortly thereafter. Rails was released in the summer of 2004, I believe it was, was when the 0.5 version was released that I had been working on for about a year at that point. And it really did not take very long. I think it took about a year, maybe a year and a half before we had that infliction point where suddenly it seemed like everyone was either doing Rails or talking about Rails or looking at Rails. And a whole host of very influential startups came out of that era. This was right around the time that Shopify, for example, was formed. I believe Topi started working on that in maybe 2005 or 2006, the <laughs> original Snow Devils snowboarding <laughs> e-commerce site that turned into Shopify was founded then. A couple of years later, we had GitHub, which is obviously one of these other things that completely changed how all open source developers, more or less, develop open source today. That was started on, on Ruby and Rails. And then you have everything from, from Twitter and Airbnb. Some of them started on Ruby and Rails. Some of them still use it to some extent. But it was clearly a very special time, a resurgence of interest in the web the whole Web 2.0 movement that it was called at the time. And before everything was kind of solidified or swallowed up in a handful of fewer platforms. So I think that was a really exciting time, I'd say, for sort of the Ruby on Rails history, the, the merge with Merb, which was a, another web framework in Ruby in, I believe, 2009, was really influential. I think the Merb project brought a bunch of good ideas around extendability and so forth into the Rails ecosystem. And it also, I think, provided us with a special, I don't know if I want to say harmony, because it's not always been harmony. There's been plenty of, I don't know, controversies over the years. But 
this idea that Ruby and Rails were linked at the hip provided a bunch of advantages, I think, to both communities. No, it also has some drawbacks, and there are other communities that strive in different ways. But the fact that we were able to incorporate all the best ideas from something like Merp that was presented as an alternative and be able to pull those people in, people who were working on Merp, and make them part of the Rails journey. Yehuda Katz, for example, one of those programmers who was working on Merp. And I learned a lot during that phase. I learned that this idea that when technical people disagree ferociously, oftentimes it's on the basis of misunderstandings or (laughs) or a different way of seeing a, a core premise. And if you actually dig deeper down into the code, into the specifics of things, you're not that different. And I think that experience with Yehuda in particular was one of those cases where I just learned, you know what, you got to have a certain distance to the inevitable controversies and disagreements that happen and are healthy to happen in the programming worlds. Because oftentimes, you know what, we don't see things as differently. That doesn't mean Mm -hmm. we agree about everything. Certainly not. But if you are already a Ruby programmer and you already enjoy Ruby... I'm pretty sure that we're going to agree on like 90% of the most important big questions in the programming world. And then after that, I mean, there's just a series of amazing releases that we've done over the years. If we take something from the more recent times, Rails 7 was to me just such a monumental release because it allowed us to present a complete story about how to build for the front end. Rails has always lived in the world of JavaScript because JavaScript is what you have to use for a web browser to provide dynamic features. But we never really hit the strive of something that felt truly Rails-like before Rails 7, in my opinion. The defaults of import map and of hotwire and all of these other tools that feel very Rails-like because they're made by Rails people. I was heavily involved with both Stimulus and Turbo and all the other things Mm -hmm. that we've been building in that domain. It's just really satisfying that we now have a complete story that you don't have to say like Rails, but Rails (laughs) and also this other thing. Now you can do those things and I I love the fact that people are using Rails with React or Vue or any of the other JavaScript frameworks. It's wonderful. It was not wonderful that it felt like you had to. It was Mm -hmm. not wonderful that someone just learning Rails for the first time kind of felt like they also then have to learn all the intricacies of JavaScript built pipelines or JavaScript front-end frameworks. The fact that someone can build a new amazing application today just with the tools that in, in the default box of Rails, that is a both a huge accomplishment, but also just a huge satisfaction of what we've been building for 20 years, that all of these things can line up in a way that come together in a cohesive package of development, joy, and productivity. And as I talked about in my keynote at Rails World, I think the time is just right. Like all of these things coming together right now when the economic forces are what they are, when people are suddenly pushed to do much more with far less, fewer people, less time, smaller budgets, all of these constraints speak in the favor of Ruby and Rails, speak in the favor of full stack developer, Mm -hmm. or as I call them, Renaissance developers at Rails World. This idea that single individuals can have tools so powerful that they can build entire systems on their own. That is a sort of beautiful, almost futuristic notion for some people, I think, today who 
scarcely even believe the idea that you can have a single programmer who can both deal with the back end and with the front end and build something great. I think we have to hold on to that vision. We don't mm -hmm. want to give up on it. We don't want to concede that to build a new application today, you need to have a team of 20 just to get started. That's complete and other nonsense. So anyway, we could talk about all of the history of Ruby and Rails for, for hours on end. There's been so many wonderful highlights and so many fun controversies at times and so many zigzags. And, and we are still here and not just still here. We're alive and kicking harder than we've had for a very long time. So it's a super exciting time to be in Ruby and Rails. I mean, it's a whirlwind. First, I want to second your idea about the Renaissance developers, because we on the receiving end, we see a surge of very exciting startups that come to us for full stack Ruby on Rails development, you know, and we see really talented founders that choose that stack, you know, for a reason. And that's a very great sign. So you're definitely onto something. And maybe there is another surge of guys like Airbnb and Twitter, but full stack. Rails. We'll see. I also want to get a little bit more personal because 20 years is a big chunk of life. You know, <laughs> how have you changed during those 20 years and how has that impacted Ruben Rails and, and everything you did actually, not just. Yeah. Rails. I mean, I'm 44 years old now, so 20 years is almost half my life. It's certainly half of my conscious life, which is a pretty big chunk. And I'm very happy that that has provided opportunity for growth and change and differences. And I think if I look back on some of the early days, I never look back on like, oh, I wish I did this or that or the other thing differently. I think that's a waste of time. But you can look back and appreciate in ways that you have taken whatever journey that you've been on and you've become a different person. I would be so immensely bored if I was exactly the same individual I am uh, now as I was when I was 24. That sounds like just such a waste. What have, what have you learned in two decades <laughs> if you have not ended up being a somewhat different person? I think when it comes to Ruby on Rails and community engagement, I've certainly changed my tack on some things. I had a more evangelical streak, I think, in the early days of, of Ruby on Rails, a more singular focus of trying to convert people by almost force of argument. <laughs> and I've kind of somewhat retired from that, I'll say, even if I believe that Ruby on Rails is still this amazing thing and most people who build for the web should at least check it out. It's kind of receded to that. Do you know what? I want programmers to be happy and productive building whatever it is that they're building. If you're already super happy and amazingly productive doing whatever it is that you're doing, you should just keep doing that. I don't have anything to sell you really in that scenario. I'm speaking to people who already have like a splinter in their mind thinking, why is this so hard? Why is it taking so long? Why do we need so many people? Why does the budget need to be so big? Why is the timeline so long? Those are the people I want to say, do you know what? You should have a look. Have a look at what we're doing over here. Have a look at what we're doing in Ruby and Rails. And that change of perspective from the forceful conversion of someone to a more leaned back, hey, have a look at what we're doing, is certainly a change that I've gone through in terms of my advocacy and how I approach people. I've also just found it for myself. I've changed my mind on, on a billion topics over 20 years. And I found that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to force someone to change their opinions or mm. even their premise or their worldview. They have to have room in their head, in their brain for it. There has to be an open slot for something new to come in. And I've seen that myself 
where I've looked at certain arguments and I've gone like, I don't think that this is correct or I don't think this is good. And then it's like a little seed that's been planted. And maybe in some cases it took years for that seed to blossom into a realization that that argument or that idea was actually had something to it. And perhaps in some cases was the correct one. And I held faulty concepts or ideas in my head and I could profit from changing those out. I think this is one of the most enjoyable parts of getting older is the capacity to revisit your priors, capacity to look at it. You know what? Everything I believed at 22 or 24, maybe it wasn't the gospel truth. Maybe some of them were right. I mean, very few people are wrong about everything in all regards, but also virtually no one is right about everything in all regards. So that, I don't know if I even want to say humility. That's not usually a word that's associated with my public persona, <laughs> but at least personally, that's what it's felt like to have some degree of humility to allow strong convictions to be loosely held. And for some of those strong convictions to fade out or fade away or even be refuted. I really enjoy that. I wrote a blog post a few years ago saying, I love being wrong. And the reason I love being wrong, at least from an understanding of like, I realize I was wrong is that it is one of those growth opportunities. Oh, I held some faulty logic, some faulty premises, some faulty ideas in my head, and here was an opportunity to get rid of those. That's progress. That's amazing. That's good. We should all wish to be so fortunate to be proven wrong and accept that we're wrong occasionally or maybe even frequently. I think especially in technology, sort of the half-life of facts is quite great. And a lot of people who've been in this industry for a long time hold on to notions they picked up at a certain moment in their career and are very hesitant to revisit any of those. I love revisiting those. I mean, one example was we recently had this discussion about type safety in JavaScript. And I came out and said, like, you know what? I don't enjoy TypeScript. I came up with that proclamation and we made the move to remove TypeScript from Turpo after I had just spent three weeks deep diving on Swift and Swift UI building for iOS and appreciating that, going like, you know what? This is actually a pleasurable experience for that domain under those constraints. Mm -hmm. Now, the funny thing was after enjoying Swift UI so much, it actually sparked some ideas and some new stuff I'm working on, I hope to show soon. And then I thought like, oh, this is actually, maybe I should revisit my priors and type safety. I went back and then I tried like, let me just build a little simple web tool in Swift. Let me build a little simple web tool in Swift. And of course, as soon as I dive into it, I want to build a piece of tooling. I see some APIs. I don't really like the APIs. I want to start building it. And then I dive into generic programming in Swift. And it did not take very long to realize, no, actually, <laughs> I, don't, I don't enjoy this part of it. Like statically typed languages certainly have some advantages for some people in some circumstances. Building tools... Not one of them. Very painful, I got to say. And painful in a way where I fail to see the payoff. Now, sometimes pain is a reasonable response you have when you're trying to grow and you're trying new ideas and you should not give up just because something is painful for a moment. This is how we actually stretch and grow through pain, whether it's physical activity or it's mentally exploring new ideas. So I stayed with it. I stayed with the pain for a moment. And whatever I was working on, at some point, I just went like, you know what? Let me just try to write this in Ruby, just for the kick of it. 
I don't need to write this in Ruby. We have all these tools in Ruby and Rails, but let me just do the contrast. And I wrote it in Ruby and like all the pain was went away. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. This is why I don't enjoy statically typed languages on the broad scheme. Now I can appreciate it for something like Swift UI and the constraints you deal in with, with devices of this type. And then I can also go like, I'm ever so thankful that I don't have to build this way when it comes to the web. And that was one of the contributing experiences to, do you know what? If we don't really enjoy TypeScript and we don't, we shouldn't write it. This is what's so wonderful about the web. Developing for iOS is, is not like developing for the web. You can develop for iOS in other tools and languages, but it's very difficult and frowned upon from the sort of establishment of the platform provider. They want you to write in Swift or Objective-C, mm -hmm. and that's the blessed languages. The web is totally different. You can write it in Ruby. You can write it in Perl. You can write it in Basic. You can write it in OrCaml, in Lisp, in .NET, in Java, in a trillion different languages, literally every single complete language ever made can be used to produce a web page. That is an absolutely beautiful, universal, diverse platform that I don't think we recognize and appreciate enough. And I think some of the push that's happened over the past decade plus or so were some factions of people building for the web went like, we should just build everything in JavaScript. On the back end as well, was throwing the greatest gift, the greatest advantage, in my opinion, of the web as a development platform out the window to say that there's going to be one blessed language for, for us to build in. What other hogwash? We are not one people. We're not one mind. Programmers don't all come out the programming factory with the same presets. Some programmers really enjoy type safety, whatever that means to them. And some, like me, are great fans of dynamic typing, of duck typing, of the Ruby way of building software, and try and force us all into one prescription or one paradigm would be an absolute travesty. It would render whole categories of happy programmers today entirely unhappy. Now, in what service? To what end? Why should we do that? Can we not embrace the beauty of a thousand different flowers of different colors and different smells and different textures and height and size and whatever? That's what the web allows us to do. So to me, this is why the web is the greatest software development platform the world has ever seen. And we should be oh so careful not to underestimate the requirements that puts on us to defend it, to push for it to celebrate it. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. I want to segue into the next part. You're so enthusiastic about tech. You're so enthusiastic about programming languages and development. What keeps you motivated through the years? Because I know like in, in the open source communities, burnout is very much real. A lot of people burn out like real bad. How do you stay sane <laughs> and excited yeah. about it? <laughs> no, I, I think there's multiple answers to that. One thing is something I've written about a lot is I try not to sign up for misconceptions out the gate. There are some people who do open source development and it starts as an altruistic endeavor. I just want to help people in the world. What a beautiful notion. Great. We should all have slivers of that sentiment. But what I've seen time and again is people who go in all in on that altruism. 
at some point, perhaps come to the realization that if they don't put on their own mask first, if they don't secure their own material well-being, they can end up in a world of resentment very quickly. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to be in that world of resentment. This is actually why, if you look back some of that Rails history, the early days had some quite forceful declarations against this from my side. One of the first Rails conferences, I think Canada on Rails, had this infamous slide that just said, fuck you. And I, I put that slide up there exactly for this sentiment, that the fuck you was to everyone showing up at my door demanding that I do work for them to their specifications on their roadmap. Otherwise, I would be hurting the community or whatever it was. The example that I've used in the past was someone berating me for why I wasn't going to spend a lot of time developing an Oracle database adapter. I was like, why would I do that? I don't use Oracle. I've never used Oracle. I'm never going to use Oracle. Let's just be frank here. So for me to do this work on your behalf, because that's something you want to see, that's the path to burnout. That's exactly where you end up feeling like, I just have a second job here that I'm not being paid to do, and the customers are rude. Why would you stay there? (laughs) That sounds like an absolutely horrible place to be. I think you, as an open source developer, if you want to stick in it for the long time, you have to put on your own mask first. So this is why I've treated my open source work first and foremost as a personal endeavor. I am building things in Ruby on Rails because I need them. My company needs them. I can see some personal satisfaction in that. It's always going to be secondary that other people benefit from that too. It's a very important secondary. It's one of the reasons I love open source, that a bunch of people can come into the open source commons and contribute sort of the thing that they needed, and we can share those gifts together. But if you don't square your assumptions of what you're trying to do, and if you don't plan for how your altruism is going to pan out for you personally, I think you're you're up against the odds. I'm not saying no one can't do mm-hmm. it. I'm saying mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people fail to do it and become resentful because of it. And that leads straight to burnout, right? Like I don't have control over my circumstances. It's not actually often so much about the work itself. It's the work in relation to the meaning of the work, the work in relation to personal situations, material sustainability, all of these other things. So I just taken that entire category and said like, nope, right from the get go, I'm not working for you. I'm working for me and I will share as a gift. No strings attached. You don't owe me anything back. I'm going to give you a gift. You don't have to reciprocate at all, but you also don't get to tell me what to do. This is why I love the MIT license, which has been at the foundation of Ruby on Rails and a lot of other open source work for a long time, which basically just says, like, you can do whatever the hell you fucking want with this piece of software. Just don't sue me. Don't come back here sort of with charges that, like, I didn't do this or that or the other thing. This is a gift. If you don't want the gift, put it in the trash, put it back on the shelf, pass it on to someone else. But don't come back and tell me how the gift isn't exactly to your specifications. I have absolutely no patience for that. So that's one part of it. And then the other, perhaps more, that's like sort of the defensive ring about my around my motivation. I'm not going to let someone else impinge on that motivation. But then you also need, I believe, for the long term at least, a personal drive. You need sort mm-hmm. of a, a locus of progress. You need, I need, I should say, I shouldn't 
talk about what other people need. I'll talk about what I need. I need a personal drive. I need a personal locus of progress. I need to explore new horizons. I need to build new things. I need to keep mm-hmm. up with the web that I love so dearly. The web has thankfully been changing and evolving and providing an ever-ending stream of opportunities for us in Ruby on Rails to take the best of it, shape it just right, and make it fit in an overall coherent vision. This was one of the reasons I so enjoyed working on Rails 7. It felt like a bunch of new frontiers had opened up because some of the fundamentals of the web were changing. Import maps in particular, that was allowing us to do no build for JavaScript, and then CSS changing later, or more recently, that's allowing us to go no build for CSS. I love those kind of things. I love that exploration of a of a new domain, just the intellectual challenge of, can we make this simpler? Can we make this easier? One of the things I was talking to Topi about this this morning, actually, was this notion of negative visualization. I'm a big fan, as it will come to no surprise of anyone who've ever heard a podcast I've been on, of Stoicism. Stoicism is uh, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and one of the mental gymnastics t- tricks or exercises that they have is this concept of negative visualization, where you imagine that however you have it right now, well, things could be a lot worse. (laughs) And you should prepare yourself mentally for the fact that on some vector, in some degree, they will become worse. No one gets out of this life alive with just a perfect smooth sailing. And in fact, if they had the perfect smooth sailing, that would become the problem in itself. I love this. I think it was uh, Dostoevsky on the fact that people are not so much problem solvers as problem creators. And I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I totally see that, right? Lots of people who have all the trappings of whatever looks like success end up in complete disarray because we deal poorly with the fact of not having challenges and not having meaning and obstacles to overcome. Anyway, negative visualization is this technique where you imagine that something is going to go wrong or preferably even horribly wrong. And I think of it in all sorts of states. You know what? I could get invalidated. I could be bound to a wheelchair. I could loop lose my eyesight. And I'm like, I try to think through those scenarios, terrible things that could happen and think in ways I would cope with that and things in a way I would still be able to be grateful for being alive, essentially. And then I also sometimes dial it down. It doesn't always have to be about maim and murder and like top shelf challenges. It can also be about commercial challenges. So I've been working on 37 Signals for over 20 years. Do you know what? That could end. At any time that could end. Companies go out of business all the time. The business that they're in changes, some catastrophic event happens, whatever. There's a million reasons why businesses can go out of business. And I think negative visualization, what would I do if I had to rewind and start from scratch? It's just back to me again. I don't have maybe even capital to hire anyone else. I have to just with these two hands and my brain be able to create something again. What kind of tools would I like to have if that were to happen? How would I want to prepare myself for the one-person adventure again? So this is one of the things that keeps driving me building for Ruby on Rails, building the one-person framework, and not just as a purely abstract thought, but as a concrete practice of thinking, can I do it myself? And I think there's just there's such an empowerment in knowing that even if you get reduced to nothing but your own capacity and your own skills and perhaps your own time, you can still do something. You're not rendered incapable. 
you're not going to be like, oh man, now I can't build software because I need a team of 20 to do anything important, to do anything worthwhile. Absolutely not. I want to be able to build something amazing again, if I'm one person. And I want to be able to have amazing tools for that to be possible. So that drives me forward and has for many years that recurrent negative visualization of the good fortune I've enjoyed in business can come to an end tomorrow or later today. And that is uh, an overwhelming possibility that a lot of people are caught blindsided by, right? Like Bill Gates has this saying that success is the worst teacher. It, It teaches people that they can't fail. Oh yeah, people can fail. All sorts of very smart people, diligent people, wonderful people have have failed and fail all the time. Every single day they fail. So do you know what? Odds are that if you're in business long enough, failure will eventually find you. So you damn well better be ready and be prepared and be in peak mental and physical and sort of tooling condition to deal with that. Well, that sounds like something from like a Nordic culture, you know, and that explains you're from Denmark, right? So I'm actually curious as to whether, you know, where you live impacts how you think. Do you think it does? Oh, hugely. I mean, cultural programming is, is virtually impossible to unwrite. I feel like it's kind of like firmware. The best you can do is you can build some patches on top that try to reroute some of these things. But if you grow up in a certain society, you will be marked by that society for life. That's just what it is. Now, again, are there spectacular individuals who are able to somehow completely uproot and unprogram for where they came from? Maybe. Is that the reality for 99.999% of people in the world? Absolutely not. So one of the things that always amuses me is that the racing world is intensely international. There are racing teams and professionals from all over the world. And we meet at very regular intervals. Whenever there's a race, you see, oh, here's the Italians, here are the Russians, here are the Germans, here are the Spanish, here are the English, here's the Americans. And it is such a reminder gathered in this one place that the cultural firmware programming is so deep. Mm. Because whenever I go to a race meeting, I always think like, holy shit, the Italians are so fucking Italian. (laughs) The Germans are so fucking German. We have these cultural stereotypes for a reason because they're fucking real, right? So I just think that I try to embrace that knowledge. And I'm an an expat here in America. I'm originally from Denmark. I grew up in Denmark. I didn't move until I was 25. And by that time, like your firmware programming is essentially complete, right? I embrace the challenge of living in a new different society, the American society, which actually, to some extent, even though I have a ton of Danish programming in me, did connect to some of the parts that did not always feel so Danish in me. Denmark has a lot of, like Yandelone is one of those things you might have heard of. It's kind of, the UK has the tall poppy syndrome. This idea, don't think you're too much, don't think you're too Mm -hmm. smart, don't think you're too good, like just fit in, accept the norm, whatever. And I could totally see, it's, it's funny, I remember when I moved from Denmark, I thought like, do you know what, this is one of the worst things about Denmark. Why do we have to keep people down? Why do we have to constrain all this ambition? Whatever. And then I moved to America and I went like, wow, amazing. Here's a country that's culturally on that barrier, totally in the opposite direction. We will absolutely applaud ambition. People are so excited when things go well for you. Again, cultural averages here, not that 
there are haters everywhere and the people who don't want you to succeed and whatever. But on a whole, I've never found a country like America that has such a cultural firmware programming to encourage entrepreneurship and ambition and success and all these other things. And then you also got to look at the fact that, you know what, all of these things produces that society. And that society has brought a bunch of good things to the world. And holy shit, is it also fucked up in all sorts of peculiar ways. And it is fucked up because of that. Like these things are interconnected. And then I go back to Denmark and I go like, I marvel at how well things are run, how equal everything feels, like we're all in the same class, whatever. I just spent three years living in Copenhagen. And at first glance, I go like, this is some sort of utopia. It's amazing what you can do, the civic orderliness and togetherness and whatever. Yeah. And you get it because of that. You get it because the box mm -hmm. is quite small and it's quite tight and the norms are enforced fiercely and vigorously. And it doesn't actually permit a whole lot of diversity of, of experience or thought or whatever. It's a highly homogenous society and wonderful for the Danes. Great spoils to the Danes because of it. But then don't think that within that tight box, you're going to get the entrepreneurial spirit of America. That's just delusional. So this is just all to see, like I've, I've recognized as much the same, the discussion we just had about the web where people can like dynamic typing, they can like static mm -hmm. typing, like we should embrace all of it and there should be places for all of it. I don't want to turn Denmark into America. Absolutely not. But I did for a while, while living in America, wanted to turn America into Denmark. And I've come to realize my mistake. First of all, it's a complete fool's errand. It's not going to happen, right? As we've talked about, the firmware programming of cultural settings changes at a glacial pace on the scale of decades or centuries. So it's just not feasible to do it. But also, I think the greater realization, it's not desirable. In my current optics, America is good. Again, is that a full declaration of totality of everything? No, absolutely not. I mean it in the sense of, is it good that there's a place that value ambition and entrepreneurship and success to the degree that the Americans do? Absolutely. The technology, the progress, the sort of capacity to move things forward is unrivaled in many ways. And we should look at that and take the good from it and find our way to deal with, with the bad. But I don't want to change it anymore. And maybe this is also connected to the sense that I used to have a more evangelical approach to the programming question, right? Like, let's get everyone to write Ruby. Everything's going to be better if everyone just writes Ruby all the time. And no, no, it's not. It's not going to be better. And you know what? The world is also not going to be better if we just make every single country Denmark. No. Interesting. I actually love Denmark. My best friend lives in Copenhagen. So every time I get to go, I have a blast. Wonderful city, beautiful country, but very difficult to integrate yeah. into. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I could imagine. She she speaks uh, Danish though. She's not. So definitely one of those places that are worth visiting for sure, because it opens your mind to many beautiful things. I also want to touch on books a little bit because you've written quite a few books that are well recognized. They they kind of, as you said, predicted what was going to happen, right? Like the remote became the norm when the COVID hit, but you made it the norm for you way before. So can you talk a little bit about the books and maybe do you have any ideas in your books that have changed 
that you would like to go back and update if if they were like on the web or something? Yes, I will say. So one of the themes that's been ongoing in a lot of our books, both in It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work and Remote and Rework, really, is to sing the counter melody of the American ode to overwork. American entrepreneurship, I should say, is so tightly connected to the notion of overwork as just an unqualified good thing. Oh, you should try to outwork the competition. If the competition's working 60 hours a week, you can work 80, and you can beat them if you're working 80. And I think we've long had a very strong, fierceful argument against that, and I still am totally on team sane working hours most of the time. What I've come to accept is that there are also perhaps certain domains or certain endeavors, certain times where some degree of stretch is good, that maybe we've over-indexed as a counter-reaction to the insanity that is the frivolous, meaningful degree of overwork that often happens in American companies, over-indexed on calm at all times for all purposes and all missions and all people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of those things, perhaps it comes from that Danish firmware programming. Like Denmark is a very calm country virtually 99.9% of the time, comparably speaking, not a lot happens, right? In terms of chaos and in terms of tumultual circumstances. That's just not the American or the Danish way. It is the American way a little bit. And mm -hmm. I've come to appreciate to a greater degree the upside of a bit of chaos, the upside of a bit of stretch. And I think this is one of the Sometimes it needs to be personified. I recently read the Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson, and I, I recommend it to anyone. Not because you're going to read that book and think, holy shit, Elon Musk is the second coming of Christ and everything he does is wonderful and he's just a great person. You're not going to think that. I mean, I'll give the spoiler away. You're going to think, this guy is nuts. But also, we should have some nuts people in the world doing some nuts things. Like, I'm never going to launch rockets to Mars and figure out how to land them on a pad and reuse them. You need crazy people like Musk to get to some of that. Same thing with, with Tesla. Kickstarting sort of a transition to battery-powered car and the way that that was done requires someone delusional, requires someone megalomaniac. You have to think you're grander and bigger than most people to be able to do that. And I've come to appreciate to a greater degree the upside of having some of those lunatics amongst us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I say that with love. I think we're all lunatics in our own special ways. But Elon is it in a very public way, I should say, which is highly polarizing. And I completely understand why it's polarizing, right? I can completely understand why someone goes like, do you know what? He's, he's just an asshole. And yes. I'm sure he is a lot of times to a lot of people, sometimes on public display. And I'm sure he would even cop to that. And some of that is just like, you know what? That comes as, as a part of the package for some individuals. Now, I'm not that individual. I'm generally speaking, not the um, sort of energy I'm here exhibiting withstanding. I'm a fairly calm person when it comes to sort of work life balance, all of these other things. We've done the same thing for 20 years. We have relatively modest ambitions. We're making 
project management tools and email systems that are somewhat better than the alternatives, but like it's not ro- launching rockets to Mars. Let's just be honest about that. And not just honest about it. Let's be square and, and fair with that. Like if I wanted to launch rockets, that was my deep dream in my heart. I'd probably be depressed if I was sitting around here just tooling with Rails and Basecamp. It would not fulfill it. Now, that's not my mission. It's not my desire. But I do believe we need, we need some crazy people to push the envelope. Mm-hmm. It's just it's also more interesting. This is the other thing. When you've lived, again, now I sound like an 80-year-old person, but when you've lived long enough, novelty and interestingness and twists in the story has a quality all of its own. Now, it doesn't mean all those twists in the story are good, but it does mean that, you know what, life is a little more interesting when everything is not mm-hmm. so fucking predictable. And I've come to embrace some degree of unpredictability and and cherish it even. That you know what it it's good. What are we made of? Let's get some tests here. Let's render some of this endless rhetoric about who we are against the reality of what we will do. And I think that's just part of the allure to me about the regional differences. And we talk about regional differences mm-hmm. in programming. There's different paradigms. There's different languages. There's regional pro- differences in, in life and society. The Italians are different from the Germans are different from the Americans. And you go like, thank heavens. I would be so fucking bored if we were all writing Ruby and we all lived in fucking Copenhagen and we all had like a prime minister who could bike to parliament every day. Do you know what? I don't want to live in that world. This is a revolt against the utopia. I think this is one of those sort of literary pursuits I've really dug into. Both Orwell and Dostoevsky and a bunch of other writers have wrestled with this idea that humans keep saying they want utopia. They keep saying they want heaven. But they're awfully vague about what utopia and heaven actually looks like. It's something about whatever respite they can get from the current pr- troubles that are dealing with them. Oh, if they don't have enough money in heaven, you'll have all the money in the world. This could go very controversial quickly. So let me just <laughs> tap it right there. Just this idea that humans, they don't know what they fucking want. They think they want heaven. They think they're a problem solving animals. What they actually are are problem creating animals and that they would pick hell over heaven five minutes after being bored out of their brains in a puffy cloud where there were no challenges or obstacles to face at all. That sounds like an idea for a new book, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yes, maybe the next book will not be sort of within the fine constraints of, of just uh, a business. It will venture into some of this stuff. But uh, yeah, let, let's see. It's certainly the things that just keep me interested, keep me thinking. I mean, this is, this is as we talk about what keeps you interested after 20 years. I always think like, do you know what? First of all, I've managed to keep things relatively interesting for 20 years, but like that's also not a guarantee. If you want to keep it interesting for the next 20 years, the next 40 years, you damn well better have an open mind to play with some uncomfortable ideas and some new ideas and how can you change your mind and, and all these things and, uh, and appreciate and indulge in the vast variety of human life and sentiments and premises and philosophies and paradigms and places. Let's not try to uniform everything sounds like a great advice we're approaching our final question and my question is always the same for all the founders that i talk to it's called warm fuzzies and the question is pretty simple what makes you feel great about what you're doing right now well if we talk about work i love shipping shipping to me is the moment of truth i love working on things but i love working on things toward shipping 
getting something out there in the world, not needling, noodling at it endlessly. That is, to me, the greatest satisfaction of the work. Shipping something and see the reaction from reality. Very often, we will have misconceptions. Is this good? Is it bad? I don't know. You ship it and the world will tell you. Now, you should still have some internal locus of, of, of self-esteem that doesn't just because there's some people tell you whatever you do is shit, that you think it's shit, or just because they tell you it's great, that it's great. But getting that input from reality is, is intoxicating. Then on the personal side, I'll just say, hearing a four-year-old laugh, you know, it's one of those things where I've talked about that there's the best things in life. Hearing a four-year-old laugh, that's right up there. And then there's the second best things in life. And we focus so much on the second best things in life, material accomplishments or social status or whatever, when a lot more should just be on like, have you heard a fucking four-year-old laugh like right in your face just recently? That is life affirming in a way that it was difficult to me to appreciate before becoming a parent. Like a four-year-old, whether it's your four-year-old or someone else's four-year-old, it's always going to be a good time if they laugh in your face. Like that's just instinctual, right? But you can 10x that if it's, I can 10x that. I shouldn't speak on behalf of others. I 10x that when I literally see my own DNA in that. There's just something intensely human about the continuation of our species that gives great purpose and meaning to, I would say, most people's lives eventually. It certainly gives meaning to my life on a just daily basis. And I uh, just incredibly thrilled for that. I like that. That's a nice note to end on. Finally, I want to provide you with space to ask our listeners to do whatever you want them to do, whether it is to try Ruby on Rails or Basecamp or whatever you want them to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if, if you are a programmer and you haven't given Ruby on Rails a try, it's never been a better time. Ruby on Rails has literally never been better. You should absolutely give Ruby on Rails a try. If you want to hear more of what I have to say on a weekly basis or, or otherwise, dhh.dk has links to all the books, all the writings, a bunch of podcasts, and so forth. So yeah, dig in, open your mind, try some new things, revisit your priors. This was an immense pleasure, I have to say. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for catching yet another episode of Dev Propulsion Labs. We at Evil Martians transform growth stage startups into unicorns, build developer tools, and create open source products. If your developer tool needs help with product design, development, or SRE, visit evilmartians.com slash devtools. See you in the next. <laughs>